This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 1. This week, U.S. Navy Commander Brian Sinclair joins me to answer the question, what is a fighter pilot? Hit it. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. My name is Vincent Aiello. I am your host. And if you have not done so already, you may want to go back and listen to episode zero. There I spend a few minutes describing this brand new show, what it is, how it came about, and a few caveats as well. So recommend you go spend a few minutes and listen to that. And also, you can find some information on the About page of our website, which is fighterpilotpodcast.com. And there you can find a little background as well. So the show structure is going to be uh, everything you've heard so far. We'll have the introduction there, a few announcements like I'm doing. And then we'll typically jump straight into listener questions. Now, this being episode one, I do not have any listener supplied questions so far, but I will tell you one question that always came up when I would meet and talk to people throughout my career was, do you only ever fly the jet with your name on it? And the short answer to that is no. Now in Hollywood, you know, in the movies, it'd be probably confusing for the viewer if they showed the hero flying in an airplane with a name, anything other than that person. But in reality, you always have more pilots in a squadron than aircraft, and some aircraft will have one name on one side and one name on the other. So with the rare exception, at least in the Navy, of when the squadron's moving all the aircraft, like if we ever went all on board the aircraft carrier or at the end of a deployment, all off the carrier, that's pretty easy then to uh, be assigned the aircraft with your name on it. But the rest of the time, it really is at the whim of the maintenance cycle and the flight schedule to put the aircraft in the appropriate places uh, where it's needed to make the flight schedule flow through the day. And it may or may not be the aircraft that happens to have your name on it. You know, for me, I actually enjoyed it better when I was flying next to the airplane with my name on it because when we were flying in close formation, I could look over and say, cool, look at that, that's my name. So again, the short answer to that is no. Another common question was, how long does your fuel last? And the short answer to that is, it depends. And that's kind of a cop-out answer, but it really does because it depends on what you're doing, what you're carrying, and what the environmental conditions are. So headwinds, tailwinds can affect how far you can go if you're just trying to get somewhere. But on most of the missions, it really comes down to how much drag you're carrying, so external stores that are being resisted by the wind because the more you have, the more fuel it's going to take to... Uh, maintain the airspeed you need. But it also comes down to your left hand, and that is where you control the speed with the thrust lever or levers. It's similar to the accelerator pedal in your car. So if you are just doing a very benign mission, in the case of an F-18, you might make the last the, the gas stretch out and last, uh, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half. But if you're going out and doing a dogfight, I've had flights that have lasted as little as 30 minutes because uh, you spend all your time in afterburner. An afterburner, if you're not aware, is a lot like when Uncle Joey's barbecuing and he takes the lighter fluid and pours it straight on the grill and it all flares up. I mean, that's literally what's happening is fuel's being dumped into the exhaust of the engine and ignited. 
and it gives you a lot of extra thrust. And if you've been to air shows or just watch videos, you've seen that already, especially on takeoffs, is that bright flame coming out of the back of the airplane. That's the afterburner. So how much fuel and how long does it last? It really comes down to, you know, what are you doing, where are you going, and what are you carrying? And typically, uh, the short answer would, there would be anywhere from generally 20 minutes possibly to as long as an hour and a half. And then, of course, aerial refueling can extend how long you can fly. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. So we'll just leave it at that with those two questions for this episode. In the future, if you've got a burning question you'd like to ask, you can go ahead and submit it, and hopefully we can cover it here in the show. Uh, you got a couple ways to do that. One is to send an email. You can send that to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. And you can also call our listener line, and that number is provided at the end of this episode. All right, so let's jump into the interview then with uh, my buddy Brian Sinclair. We're going to talk about what is a fighter pilot. And before we do, let me just cover a a couple quick things here. Uh, First, audio quality-wise, I'm just getting started in podcasting. So I've got some starter equipment. I'm using my uh, Mac Lapbook. Pro here or whatever it's called, and uh, GarageBand. So I'm doing my best with the audio quality. I'd ask for a little grace on your part. We're going to continue to get better at it. And uh, editing-wise, I'm doing my best, and there might be some chops here and there. You know, my best resource is my 17-year-old son who's a whiz at all this. So we're going to work on it and continue to improve the quality for your listening enjoyment. Secondly, uh, both Sunshine and I have a little bit of a cough when we recorded this, so uh, apologize in advance for that. And third, again, as I talked about in episode zero with pronoun usage, we do say he and him and uh, guy and other masculine terms a lot, but uh, we are just generalizing there. We're, we're not making any statement or uh, expressing any bias. All right, so let's get to the interview. Okay, today in the Fighter Pilot Podcast studio, I am joined by my very good friend, United States Navy Commander Brian Sinclair, call sign Sunshine. Sunshine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jello. It's an honor to be here. Well, and by studio, I of course mean your children's <laughs> playroom here, it looks <laughs> Close like. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> We've got My Little Pony, we got some Legos, uh, we're in good shape, so Excellent. All right. Well, I want to establish a protocol on this show. As you know, this is episode one. Thank you for being my very first Thank you. guest. Uh, and we're going to talk about what is a fighter pilot and what a fighter pilot is not and a few other things. Uh, but before we do, like I said, I want to establish a standard where my guest gives a little background on himself or herself so that the listening audience will get to know him. So please let us know where are you from, uh, what have you done in your professional life, and where are you at now? Thanks, Jello. I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Went to school at the Naval Academy, spent four years there, got an aerospace engineering degree, headed off to flight school, uh, which was down in Florida, obviously. Spent about two years total getting my wings of gold, as they call it. From there, headed off to the fleet, first in the S3, which is a Lockheed product. From uh, We no longer use it, but it was a uh, surveillance kind of thing and also a carrier-based tanker. From there, I headed off to Monterey, went to Naval Postgraduate School, picked up an, an MS in aero, uh, excuse me, astronautical engineering. It's been so long. Hmm. From there, I went back to the fleet for F-18Cs and then F-18Es. I was about four years there. And then I headed off. I went back to the Naval Academy as a teacher and actually taught in the aerospace engineering department. That was a lot of fun. And then from there, I headed off to the, in the uh, Air Force Test Pilot School. Once I finished that year-long course, went off to weapons test in China Lake with the Navy. And now I'm down in San Diego at Coronado as in the maintenance test pilot for the depot. 
Yeah, and that's uh, where we met, actually, uh, on my Twilight tour before I retired. So you have a very diverse background, which is no accident that I chose you. Not only are you my friend, but uh, with that background, you're an excellent candidate to talk about our subject of the day, which is what is a fighter pilot, because you've been an, a military pilot that was not a fighter pilot in the case of the S3, mm-hmm. and then you moved over, and you've even rubbed elbows with the Air Force guys. So as yeah. I said in my little intro, episode zero, you know, I, you're Navy, obviously I'm Navy. There's going to be a lot of Navy talk on this show, but we want to try to broaden it out if we can. So you've seen it kind of from all perspectives. True. I got a little Air Force stink on me. You are. <laughs> well, we like those guys. All right. So let's jump <laughs> right into the meat of the matter for this show. Uh, let's start it right off with this subject of the day. What is a fighter pilot? So we're more of a, think of us as a type A personality professional athlete in aviation. So what I mean by that is type A, hey, a lot of attention to detail is required. Things are moving quickly. We have to make sure switches are in the right position very quickly or it can be very consequential. Now, when it comes to the professional athlete, that jet can really pull some G's, so it can maneuver quite well. And what I mean by that is uh, pulling G's is going to, so right now we're sitting in a 1G environment, we call it, and the listeners at home are probably sitting in their cars or sitting in their house, and what you're experiencing is 1G. So we'll pull around, we'll get about seven to eight times what you're feeling right now. Oh, by the way, we're not staring straight ahead, we'll be looking over our shoulder and whatnot. So it turns out to be physically tasking. So coming out of a good flight, I will actually have broken a sweat, and I'll be, uh, some days, uh, depending on what I did that day, I'll be almost as sweaty as though I'd fallen into a pool. So a professional athlete that's got a lot of type A personality tendencies. Sure. And let's even take it a step more broad, if you will. I mean, I think all of our listening audience probably knows that a fighter pilot is is essentially an aerial soldier. Uh, instead of driving a tank or, or driving a ship, in the case of maybe an Army or a Navy person, and it's someone who does their combat in an aircraft. And Absolutely. they might uh, engage other aircraft, or they might engage targets on the ground with bombs, or they might do both in the same flight. Uh, but yeah, to your point, it is a very strenuous uh, activity, uh, both physically and, wouldn't you say, mentally? Or Absolutely. Uh, very taxing mentally. Sure. Okay. Um, because I've always thought that, you know, being a fighter pilot is, I I would put it up there on par professionally wise with, I don't know about you, but a doctor, a lawyer. I mean, that, that's kind of the stereotypical, Hey, you want to be a success, go be one of those. Well, you know, fighter pilot has to know a lot about the aircraft itself, Mm -hmm. about aerodynamics and, and weather, about missile and weapon systems, about the adversary, about tactics, about landing in the case of you and me uh, and other Navy pilots on the carrier, uh, aircraft carrier that is. So there's a lot of knowledge and skill required to be a fighter pilot. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And not only do you have to have that knowledge, which will come somewhat from academics, but also from experience, but you have to be able to confidently execute said maneuvers Right, so you have to understand them and then uh, be able to go out and execute them as well. Exactly. Yeah. So fighter pilots, I would say, uh, based on personal experience, like you said, they're type A personalities. I mean, this this career seems to attract certain types of people, or maybe it takes people and turns them into certain type of people. I don't know, (laughs) but they're not really meek people. I mean, they're they're usually kind of you know maybe Hollywood gets this part right. They they juggle the line right up there between confidence and. Maybe, might I say, arrogance? Or cockiness, yeah. Confidence yeah. and cockiness. There's a thin line. I would say the typical fighter pilot, typical, will he could command a room. So he can get everyone's attention and exudes the confidence, if you will, to uh, keep people engaged. Uh, what would you say, though, are a few things? We've kind of already touched on it. Uh, what are a few things a fighter pilot is not? I would say can't be a wallflower. 
He's got to be very confident in what he does, but also he has to be able to accept constructive criticism. So I can't remember a flight that I've ever performed perfectly. So uh, we have our brief, as you know, the, and I'm sure you'll talk about another episode, but uh, you spend a lot more time talking than you do flying in the F-18. You're going to talk about what you're going to do with your wingman prior to getting in the jet. You'll execute, and then you're going to talk about what you did with your wingman afterward. Sometimes those debriefs or the after talk, if you will, can last anywhere up to almost four hours. So during that four hours, you and your wingman are going to criticize each other, and but the intent is not to be derogatory, but it's trying to make each other better. So you have to be able to accept criticism pretty willingly and pretty freely. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but as I was a, a young fighter pilot, it was difficult sometimes to turn that off when you came home. Uh, <laughs> I found that, that that tactic didn't work too well yeah, with, the with, wife, the, with the, the wife or the, no, or the yeah, kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you got to be softer. You got to be softer. Yeah, true. Uh, especially when you come off of a deployment where you've been gone <laughs> for months at a time. But um, no, I think that's a very valid and excellent point, which is, you know, being a pilot, any, I would argue any military pilot, or really any pilot, let's just say, um, it's not that it's necessarily dangerous, although there is some danger, uh, mm-hmm. but it's inherently unforgiving of mistakes. Absolutely. So particularly when you are in a military aircraft and you're engaged in close quarters combat with possibly another aircraft like you talked about before, you've got to have the skill and the understanding of the various maneuvers you may be required to do to, to do that in such a way that you can do it competently and safely and that your, uh, you know, your fellow pilots can rely on you, but also the folks on the ground, because, you know, if you can't make it to where the combat's happening, you get shot down before you get there. Well, then, you know, you, maybe your bombs didn't make it there. So, uh, it's, it's very consequential. And and because of that, you know, we do spend a lot of time, you know, kind of criticizing, not criticizing, but, but pointing, we we don't come back from a flight, let's put it this way and say, Oh, that was really great. This, that, and this other thing. We're going to gloss over everything that went well. Right. And we're going to focus on the things that need improvement. That we could have done better. Absolutely. Well, so, so keep in mind, we talk about uh, constructive criticism, type A personalities, the amount of excellence and precision that's required airborne to, to get the mission done. And so we'll all describe that as working hard. And when you work hard, you have to let off some steam, so you're going to play hard too. So yes, when it comes to liberty, which would be when the aircraft carrier pulls into a, a port that's vacation for a couple days, couple hours, who knows what. So those individuals that were working hard on the boat are now probably going to be playing hard on the beach. You know, I always considered the uh, aircraft carrier kind of like a prison. Um, you know, you're confined. You go where they want you to go. It's uh, food's you, you, not that good. Yeah, the food's not that good. You eat what's being served, uh, <laughs> and you're stuck on the thing. Except for those of us who are lucky enough to get away for an hour or hour and a half at a time, we get paroled. Right, but when you do pull into port, man, it's like being paroled for a while. You you you. You've been cooped up for a while. You've been doing stressful things, and it's time to release. And uh, the interesting thing about fighter pilots is, like you just said, they work hard, but boy, do they play hard. And We do. I don't know about you. I'm actually somewhat glad to be retired and in my mid-40s because it started getting painful. <laughs> it, it's a young man's profession, yeah. both on and off the job. But uh, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, there's a lot of good places all over the, uh, all over the world that Navy ships are pulling in, and uh, young men and women are are. are dealing with, if you will, at least I always felt this way, kind of processing or dealing with the stresses and the danger of what we do. And and they do that by going out and doing what a lot of type A 
25 to 35 year olds do. And that is they go out and party and have a good time and get crazy and do silly things and let off some steam. And yeah, we, we typically, uh, we hit it pretty hard in everything we do. I would say there's not a lot of, um, anything that we do, like you said, that's meek or, or less than hundred percent. Yeah. I would say, although, uh, just for the audience, so please don't think that we go and pillage or anything like that when we pull into port. So, you know, I mean, we're going to observe all the laws and all that stuff. Oh, it's sure. just, uh, but I would almost say like a college kid with, with a, with a salary, right? Uh, you, got, the, you got some money to spend. You probably didn't spend much while you're on the boat, haze gray and underway. So you got, now you got available free time. You've got free money or money available. Let's say discretionary income. Right. And you're probably going to spend some of it on, uh, one example I remember in Guam, Guam was stunning. Guam is kind of the, for the Japanese and for the people in the Pacific, the way I took it is the poor man's Hawaii. <laughs> so what I mean by that, it's a little cheaper. And I was stunned in Guam that you can have a bar right next to a shooting range. So folks can go kind of get energized at the bar and then they can go rent an Uzi, an automatic machine gun and have some fun. Right next to other facilities, which we won't bother to describe. Yeah, but, but, but you again, need singles for those can, other facilities. Yeah, yeah. so... So anyway, <clears throat> the point of all that being simply that, uh, you know, they, they tend to, uh, you know, light their hair on fire, figuratively speaking, uh, in anything we're doing. Uh, like you said, when you're flying, it's, you come back sweaty. And uh, when you're on Liberty, you, you do the same thing. You go all out. Uh, so you, you talked about the young man a moment ago. Uh, suppose there is a young man that's listening to this and says, you know, that sounds like something I'd like to do or try. Uh, how does someone become a fighter pilot? How did, how did you and uh, what are some other ways that uh, a person can become a fighter pilot? First and foremost, the fighter pilot is a commissioned officer in the armed forces. So to get your commission, as they call it, there are three sources. One is the service academy, whether it be Army, Navy, Air Force, there's also officer candidate school, so you go to a civilian college on your own dime for the four years, and then after that, join, and there's a somewhat compressed training in the officer candidate school, or OCS. And the third option is a scholarship from the, from the federal government so that you would go through a private institution, let's just throw out Notre Dame or Penn State, for example. The government would pick up some, if not all, of that ride, if you will, to get you there. And then on the backside, once you graduate, you owe them service. And that's called Reserve Officer Training Corps. So there are three accession programs, the academies, officer candidate school, and Reserve Officer Training Corps. Yeah, or ROTC. And that was the way I was able to get in uh, through UCLA. So like you were saying, you uh, end up getting a four-year college degree uh, through one of those three methods, and you get commissioned into the military as either maybe a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps or the Air Force or an ensign in the case of the Navy. And then you have to be selected for flight school, and then you make your way over to flight school. So what, how's, how does that go? Yeah, so uh, my experience is from the Naval Academy. And for service selection, it was based upon your academic performance or really uh, also your physical fitness, so gym grades and uh, also academic grades. And no kidding, they just have a list, and they're going to rocket ripple. So... They're going to have a list, which would be kind of like when you graduate from high school, you graduate first, you graduate last in your class or somewhere in between. So they're going to take your class rank and they're going to have X number or a certain number of slots to be pilot. And they're going to start with the first guy in the class and he gets to choose what he wants, whether it be subs, uh, ships or aviation. Yeah, in the case of the Navy or SEALs, right? Yeah, you're right in the case of the Navy. And so I just happen to have, uh, I guess, a low enough or high enough class rank, which is a low enough number that I got one of the pilot slots. Yeah. 
Uh, great. No, it was the same way at ROTC, as I recall. Uh, it was all performance-based, so academic grades, uh, participation in the unit, as it's called, you know, uh, for those listeners who have been on college campuses and you see the folks marching around with their demilitarized rifles and uniforms on, that's that's your ROTC guys. What is a demilitarized rifle for our means, audience? Yeah, it just means it won't fire anymore. Yeah, right, demil, yeah. At UCLA in the early 90s yeah. was even then still an issue, but let's let's not go off subject Okay, here. that's another episode. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, now see, where was I going with that? <laughs> Well, so, uh, so we got our commission. We talked about how we get selected once right. we're a commission oh, officer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So it's the same thing. It's performance-based grades, your participation at the ROTC. And then, you know, I, I can remember the day where they rank, ranked you, like you said. And, and when it was my turn to go in and see the unit's commanding officer, he sat at his desk while I stood at attention. And he said, congratulations, Midshipman Aiello, you have pilot training. And I walked out of there on cloud nine. So that was a day I can remember like it was yesterday, but it's been... Golly, almost a quarter of a century. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on. So you get picked for pilot training. And of course, if you don't get that, there are also, uh, in the case of the Navy, we have what? Naval flight officer. So it's the, the, the people that fly with the pilot, but they're not actually controlling the aircraft, right? Yeah, more of a... Uh Helpful with the systems, whether it be radio, navigation, I should say communications, navigations, or weapons employment. Right. So those two groups will head down to Pensacola, Florida, in the case of the Navy, and they will start their training and just give us a quick thumbnail on what that's like. Yeah, you go down to Pensacola, Florida, they call it kind of the cradle of naval aviation. That's where you're going to start with an academic phase to flight school. So you're going to sit in a classroom, you're going to learn the basics of weather, you're going to learn the basics of aerodynamics, you're going to learn the basics of... Uh, communications and and rules and regulations when you're flying. You finish that up, and from there, you're going to head off to a propeller-based training. So think of it more as a crawl, walk, run approach, especially if you're going to end up in a fighter, which is flying around, let's say, 400 knots. Well, when you're driving 55 miles an hour on the highway, your brain only has to react so quickly. Now, when you accelerate up to about 500 knots, which is about 550 miles an hour, your, your processes have to be a lot faster. So there's a, there's a gradual kind of a build-up approach to that. So it's going to start out with propeller planes. Propeller planes will go up to maybe 250 miles an hour, we'll say. And then from there, once you feel comfortable with that, then you're going to move on to jet training. So with jet training, that's going to be uh, where you'll be doing your dogfighting, which would be aerial combat. You'll also be working on employment, which would be air-to-ground stuff, so dropping practice bombs on targets. And the culmination of the jet training is going to be on the carrier. So you're going to go hook down. The first time you go to the boat or the aircraft carrier, you're by yourself. So they're minimizing risk, and they're also kind of they're pushing you out of the nest. So you're no longer the fledgling, right, as you kind of start your uh, uh, journey to become a man, let's say, in naval aviation. Sure. And by yourself, you mean in the aircraft. So even though you're flying a two-seat trainer aircraft, they're not going to put an instructor in the back. With some exceptions, I think they will you're right. if you're really but, struggling. But oh. but you will have your fellow pilots back on the corner of the ship. And we're going to have a whole couple episodes on carrier-based operations to explain that to our listeners. So, so yeah, in the case of the Navy, that is the uh, capstone, if you will, is going out and actually landing on an aircraft carrier. I bet you mm-hmm. can remember your first time. Absolutely. I, I certainly do. I actually missed the whole ship my first time around. Oh, I just, well, yeah, okay. it was, it was it Second was awful, time's but, charm, right? Well, and then they waved me off for being too close to the guy oh, in front of me. But anyway, time. all right. So let's move <clears throat> moving on. Um, but uh, yeah, so you get through that and then, uh, you, you know, you, you, you get your wings at that point and then you get to go train in whatever specific aircraft. Now, yeah. when we were both starting, there were, as you found out, obviously, other aircraft to pick, you know, S3 in your case. Seems like pretty much everything these days in the Navy 
is just the F-18, although now the F-35 is coming out. But it uh, seems like most everyone ends up in Hornets or Super Hornets, huh? Absolutely. You're correct. Okay. Well, what about, uh, we've talked about military fighter pilots. Are there any civilian fighter pilots? They are few and far between. Traditionally, they're going to be retired fighter pilots that were, you know, that once were served in the forces, the armed forces. And their traditional role is going to be pretend or practice bad guys. So they're going to go out there. Turns out it's a little cheaper for the federal government to hire or kind of outsource bad guy aircraft than it is to use their own maintenance. Kind of, they're burning up their own aircraft, if that makes sense, or using up their own aircraft and fuel. So it's easier to go out and uh, practice on some civilian firms that fly old things, like they've got a Kafirs, which I believe is a, a an Israeli Delta. That's right, F twenty one. I think it is. Yeah, F twenty one. Thank yeah. you. It's a Delta Delta wing, so kind of a triangular shaped wings. Mm-hmm. They also have Hawker Hunters, which are I believe from the the Korean War era. Yeah, I think 1950s, that's right. I've got a good friend British. flying one of those out of Point Magoo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, in some some instances, I believe they will also fly Super Tucanos. Okay. Yeah, I'm not real familiar with that one. So yeah, so. You know, a guy like me, having been retired, I could theoretically go find a company that is uh, outsourcing, like you said, to the government, contracting to the government, almost like a sparring partner, I guess. Uh, And they show up and, you know, they're at the right place at the right time and they know the rules and they've done it in a different capacity. But these aren't these aren't companies we're sending to go do combat. You know, this is for training and administrative. And, you know, some of the listeners maybe have even gone to a local air show and seen, I think, doesn't Red Bull have like a MiG-21 that they fly around? They do, yeah. And, yeah, TRW used to have some old F-105 really? Starfighters I remember okay. seeing once. I don't know if they still do or not. But, yeah, so pretty small population of people. And probably, like you said, I would, I would surmise 100% of them, or if not very, very close, all came from a military background. You, you don't see too many guys that work their way up. Traditionally. So yeah. uh, one other thing. So I, had, I went to the Air Force Test Pilot School. One of the allures, I guess, or some of the allure, excuse me, of going to a test pilot school was during the syllabus, they're going to have you fly upwards of 30 different types of aircraft. Well, the armed services here in the United States, we don't have 30 different types of aircraft in the inventory to fly. So what we'll do is we'll hire guys, civilians, that actually uh, maintain and operate jets. So an L-39 Albatross is an example of that. And so you do have some instances where there are civilians that were never in the military, but they are... uh, aviation experts, I guess, within that specific airframe that they fly. So the test pilot schools will actually hire these guys to to bring their exotic jet, if you will, to the test pilot school, and then they'll have each of the students fly it for about an hour and write a report on it. I think you've just inspired me to have a whole show on test pilot school because that sounds pretty intriguing. I mean, I guess the point of that is, uh, and we can talk about it later on that episode, but um, the idea is what, that they get exposure to so many different things. They see how different wings maybe handle and different aircraft. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of a, yeah, pretty cool. an aviation clinicals, I guess, mm-hmm. if you're a doctor kind of thing. So okay. they want you real world experience with many different types of aircraft. And so on that note, you know, a fighter pilot, uh, compared to another fighter pilot in the Navy, is not always going to have the same career path. Is that correct? I mean, you went to test pilot school. I went to Top Gun, so I think I've answered my own question. But just for the sake of discussion, it's not the same for everyone, right? It is not. So you'll probably start out in the same place, and that would be your first, as we call it, a C-tour, where you're going to be attached to a a squadron. Squadron is traditionally about 18 people, and they'll have about 12 jets probably. And you'll go out, you'll deploy, so you'll be on aircraft carriers, dropping bombs, raging around, having fun in ports. And you'll do that for about two to three years. And then after that, the Navy, excuse me, the, the service, and I'm going to st- speak specifically for the Navy, they're going to give you a little latitude. 
hey, so if you want to focus on the tactics, probably Top Gun is a great way to go. If you want to focus more on the aerodynamics and the systems kind of integration, then Test Pilot School is a good way to go. And if you want to continue to hone your skills in your current platform, you can actually go back to the training squadron for your, your current platform. And yeah, you can that become... you just left a couple of years ago, and you can come back as an instructor. Exactly right. right, yep. So it really is tailored to the interest of that individual. I mean, some... Abs- to like, a degree. There's always what we call needs of the Navy. Sure. But yes, sure. absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, you've got your random other things. Like you went off to be an, a Naval Academy instructor, which was a little off track. Right? Uh, extremely off okay. track. Yeah, I, I kind of hey, fell out of the nest. I smelled a little funny, but you know what? They let me back in, so <laughs> I appreciate go. that. So, so, so people can find many different paths, if you will, along the same journey uh, of, uh, of a fighter pilot. And in this case, with just the two of us in the room, I mean, we could only speak to the Navy. The Air Force could be a different story. Although, I don't know, is it true? I've heard that like those guys might start off, like you started in S3s and ended in F-18s, and that's relatively rare Absolutely. in the Navy. But is that fairly common in the Air Force? Do some of those guys like start off in bombers and end up in cargo and had a tour in fighters in the middle, or is that... The wives' tale. The at least from my my experience with the Air Force, that is not traditional. Okay. It's usually, you're going to stick to a platform and run with it. Okay. Now, what will happen though is with the fighter guys specifically, so F-15, F-16, F-22, right. F-35, those guys can bounce around, if you will, between the different platforms. Okay. All right. Well, cool. We have talked about what a fighter pilot is, what a fighter pilot is not, um, some different characteristics of them, uh, and how to become one. We've mentioned civilian fighter pilots. Uh, what am I missing here, Sunshine? What else is there? Yeah. Now, I would say uh, one thing, uh, being a fighter pilot, yes, they make video games about our job. They make movies about our job. But um, it is actually a very humbling career, I would say, at least for me personally. I don't know about you, Jello. There are days that you're, uh, especially in, in my aircraft, I'm single seat, so I'm by myself up there. So if anything gets messed up, can't turn and look over my shoulder and blame someone else. It's hard to blame the equipment because that is pretty much state of the art. So I find that there's a lot of opportunities to better yourself. And so um, we did talk about arrogance. We talked about confidence. We talked about commanding a room. But you still have to be, I would say, a pretty humble warrior in that there are going to be days that are just full of humble pie. Slices, slice after slice of humble pie as you try to realize, what could I have done better at 500 knots or 550 miles an hour? You know, what, what could I have done better? So you're constantly looking for self-improvement and kind of uh, trying to hone your skills each and every day. So you notice uh, constructive criticism, once again, is, is important. You got to be able to take it. You got to be able to take it well, incorporate it, and then execute it the next day. Not hold any kind of grudges when people tell you that kind of stuff. So once again, overall, a fighter pilot is everything we just mentioned, but he's also, I would say, uh, a, a big part of it is being humble and understanding how to effectively use humility. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that doesn't make for a very compelling movie. So, uh, <laughs> you, you know, when you watch things like Top Gun and uh, some of the other classic traditional fighter pilot movies out there. I uh, have never high-fived one of my wingmen on the tarmac. <laughs> you know, but hey, let's face it. Nobody wants to see a movie about uh, reality. They want to, you know, they want to be excited and, and, and inspired. And so we can sacrifice a little reality for the sake of uh, entertainment. And I'm okay with that. But, you know, one thing I, as I started this podcast uh, some time ago and have been getting it ready for this launch, uh, that was, I think, a little small part of it is... You know, it's not just the mirrored sunglasses and turned up collar. I mean, we are a diverse group. I mean, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. Uh, it's not just 
what you see on TV or in the movies. Uh, we are human beings. We try to be good at what we do. Uh, we face down death every day, and sometimes uh, it, it hits all around us. Uh, so that keeps us, I would say, very sober. Um, but it is a it is a profession, as I said earlier, that I think is every bit as worthy of admiration uh, and and clout as just about anything else you can do because. You know, if you're a, a lawyer and make a mistake, I presume, I don't know, I've never been one, but uh, you might get disbarred, I guess could be the worst thing, but you're probably not going to die. Probably uh, not. And again, you know, this profession is, is very risky. Aviation in general is, but certainly when missiles and bombs are involved, it just uh, gets even more so. Very unforgiving. All right. So anything else? Well, uh, Jello, you ever going to do an episode on call signs? How did you get the term or the call sign Jello? Uh, well, see, now I should probably pay you an extra five bucks because that is a I'm perfect. Paid for this? Uh, <laughs> I was going to buy you a Coke or something. Oh, sweet! Uh, that is a perfect thank you segue into episode two, oh. uh, which will be all about call signs. Fantastic! Uh, how we get them, why we get them, uh, what they mean, and uh, some good examples of them. So, and they're not always as cool as Maverick. <laughs> And sl- no, uh, yeah. In real life, uh, at least in the Navy, I don't know Air Force guys. I don't know if they give uh, themselves yeah, cool they ones. Yeah, they kind of they tend so, toward the Top Gun movie Hollywood. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So nope. Sunshine, you will need to tune in for episode two to hear all about it. But I know you already know it. But you know, I'm glad you asked. Besides the segue, because I want you, if you would please, to explain how you got your call sign. And I think I might make this a tradition on the show. Is uh, maybe we start with the guy's background and we end with how did you get your call sign? Uh, so for me, sunshine, it was kind of an annoying thing in that I, and my wife and kids can back me up in the morning. I am annoyingly happy. So no caffeine, no coffee required. Concur. Hey, thank you, Jello. <laughs> anyway, so basically I, I go from the horizontal in bed, I bounce out of bed and I'm ready to do something. And so my first J-O, sorry, my first squadron tour, I would run into the red room. Hey fellas. All right. Uh, you know, it's, it's 7am. I'm ready to fly. What are we going to do today? And they were more of the slow-moving folks in the morning. They, they, before they got their coffee, didn't want to talk to them kind of thing. And they basically would say, shut up, sunshine. And it just kind of stuck. <laughs> and I think you'll learn later that if you try to resist your call sign, it only sticks more. Oh, yeah. So you're like an upright golden retriever. Annoyingly so. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is where maybe video could be useful for my podcast because uh, the, the, as you were describing the happiness part, uh, the disgust on my face hopefully was evident. It's, <laughs> he, he's annoyingly, as he said himself, he's annoyingly polite. We can't walk down the street together as we were doing our turnover in that last job. He, he took my billet from me as I was leaving uh, without That's him a- saying hello to someone. I think you were running for mayor or something. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, hey, I, on a personal note, uh, it's been an inspiration to me to, to know you, not to say that I'm going to quit knowing you after this. Uh, but, <laughs> Sounds very but, final, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, thanks for the podcast. I'll be and it. I'm out of uh, here. But no, I mean you, you, that's the one thing about this career is we all, you know, iron sharpens iron, and so you have you have taught me. I hope to uh, be a little more sunny and uh, outgoing to people because I, I watch the reaction you have on other people and you, you brighten them up. So it's Thank it you. is an apropos call thank sign. You. Thank you, sir. Uh, and uh, you know, use the word it, apropos. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up then, Sunshine. I just want to thank you for taking the time to uh, let me come over here to your beautiful house and uh, talk about what it is and what it means to be a fighter pilot. Uh, you certainly know. You've been there. And uh, what's next for you, by the way? What's, what's the future hold? Uh, so we finally landed in San Diego, California, which is my wife's hometown. 
We've started to uh, grow roots here and that my kids love the school. I love the area. The winters, hey, it's December and I'm in shorts. So growing up in Pennsylvania, that's a, that's a definite win for me. So I think we're going to retire here in the next couple months and hopefully work on one of the, the big aerospace defense contractors like uh, Northrop Grumman, General Atomics, uh, United Technologies Corporation, something like that. So try to stay close to aviation. But as you know, Jello, fighter pilot is traditionally young, a young man's profession. And you, my friend, and I, we are not young anymore. No, that is sadly true. But what we do possess is a wealth of knowledge from our years of doing this that can be very useful to the government in this case uh, for you. So I want to wish you all the best on that. Thank and, you. Uh, appreciate your friendship. and Absolutely. And, uh, Same. Likewise. All right. Well, let's get out of here. All right. See you later. Okay. Well, that was a really fun time. Uh, Sunshine is an awesome guy, as I'm sure you would agree. So really, again, want to thank him for taking the time. And I just want to explain now a couple of things that we talked about in the interview. First off, early on when Sunshine said China Lake, he was referring to Naval Air Station China Lake. It's in Ridgecrest, California. It's a couple hours north of Los Angeles, uh, east of Bakersfield, west of Las Vegas, up there on the way up 395 to Mammoth. It's where a lot of weapons testing is done because it's out in the desert where there's a lot of open space. Secondly, he was talking about knots, which he means nautical miles. Those are miles based on not like a statute mile, which is 5,280 feet, but it's a little over 6,000 feet, and it's uh, based on the circumference of the earth. One minute of latitude is kind of a nautical mile, so it ends up being about 15% greater than a regular statute mile, so that's hence the conversion he was talking about. And Ships and aircraft use that because of the navigation part of it. Another thing is uh, when Sunshine said a squadron has 18 people, uh, what he was talking about there was the number of pilots. And in some cases, in a Navy F-18 squadron, uh, it might be fewer than that. In other squadrons, it might be more, especially if you have an F-A-18D or F squadron that has two crews, then you're going to typically have about double that number. Uh, But an F-18 squadron is generally going to have over 200 people total because you've got all the maintainers. Uh, Unlike the Air Force where you have a separate squadron of operations, if you will, and then a separate one for maintenance and they work together, but it's not the same unit in the Navy. It is the same unit. And so in one squadron, you'll have, again, the 18 pilots of which the leader and the number two are also pilots. And then you've got around 150, 180 uh, maintenance officers and then some support administration and et cetera. And then uh, I do want to spend a little more time, actually, uh, due to editing and a few other things, we ended up not talking as much as I wanted to about what a fighter pilot is not. And a point I want to make is that, you know, unlike the movies, uh, uh, fighter pilots are not rule breakers or devil may care, you know, fly by night uh, type of people. We are calculated and we do follow the rules. Um, so, you know, the proverbial buzz the tower and, and do what you want kind of stuff. It's just, it's not real. Uh, and a story I'll convey real quick, just to, uh, make the point is when I was a flight student, uh, I was going to the uh, Marine Corps Air Station El Toro Training Squadron. That's in Orange County, California. It's closed now. But I went through as a Navy student, which is not uncommon in a Marine squadron. And I remember there was a student, I think a class or two ahead of me, who took off one day and 
just, I don't know, he's feeling a little froggy or something, but he just decided to do an aileron roll at about a thousand feet after takeoff. And if you're not familiar, that's where you just, you're still going the direction you started off in, but you, you, uh, you just kind of put the ailerons full over and you just kind of roll about the axis that you're going. And, and you're not supposed to do that. I mean, that is an aerobatic maneuver and uh, you can't do it over densely populated areas. It's a FAA rule. And, uh, this kid, I don't know, just felt like he was high on life or something and decided to do it and went out and did his mission. And when he came back, uh, somebody had seen it and they called him in to explain. And long story short, he ended up getting uh, basically fired from the F-18. And this after they just spent all that time to train him and uh, get him to that point. And because he made one poor decision and uh, did an aileron roll, which frankly, probably nobody on the ground noticed, but uh, except for the one person uh, on the base who knew better, uh, you know, held him accountable. And I don't know what he's doing now. I've lost touch with him. But, uh, you know, it's it's a serious business that we're in. And we don't just flaunt the rules. It makes for interesting movies. But in reality, it's not something we do or you'll end up grounded quicker than you want uh, or, or quick, quicker than you know. And that's not what you want. So. It is, as Sunshine and I talked about, a very unforgiving business in the first place. And if you go around breaking rules and doing what you want, then uh, it's not going to go well for you. Uh, so that that is another thing fighter pilots in real world are not. It's just flagrant rule breakers. All right, that is about it for the interview. I will try to, if I can figure it out, throw in the show notes, uh, some links to the different things we talked about, the uh, Naval Academy, OCS, ROTC, some of those aircraft that Sunshine rattled off towards the end that the civilians fly. And uh, we will try to put those in and just see what we can do. So that's going to do it for this inaugural episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I've been advised that at this point it would be good to say that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the guest and the host only and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, uh, please like, join, follow. We're on all the typical social media places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, We've got a YouTube channel. We've got the website I mentioned earlier, fighterpilotpodcast.com. We've got an email, questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com, where you can submit your listener questions, or you can leave us a message at 877-MOCK-101. That's 877-622-4101. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Take care.